Well, this morning we will continue our studies of the Gospel of Matthew. We're doing so in a series called Harvest, where we're looking at a section of teaching um, in chapter 9, 10, and 11, where Jesus gives instructions to his disciples on how to share their faith. Now, we're coming somewhat to the second half or near the end of this uh, section of teaching, and now we come to this big passage of scripture here, that Jesus is coming not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. So we have to start with the first question, I think. Why does Jesus say such shocking and difficult things? Why does Jesus do that to us? I think ultimately what it does is Jesus makes us think. He makes us become self-aware and really face the reality that we live in. The seeming unacceptability or impossibility of his teaching makes us actually have to wrestle with it. Jesus doesn't make it easy to understand his teachings because he's trying to get you to actually engage with them. Actually wrestle with them. So we see consistently the disciples saying things like, this is a hard saying, or what does this actually mean? Because Jesus often teaches in parables. So the meaning isn't readily available on purpose. Today's teaching is one of Jesus' most notoriously difficult teachings. But what we'll see is that it is absolutely essential and life-alteringly helpful. Now, because, now every text of Scripture is important, but there's certain texts that when you get to them, they feel so significant, so weighty, that the preacher is bound to have a terrible week in preparation for it. (laughs) But I think both as the hearer, when you hear these texts of Scripture, there's this initial discomfort. For me, as a preacher, there's a lot of discomfort on how how do we make sense of this? How do we apply this? How do we bring this home? What we don't want to do, both you or I, is shrink back. I think if our tendency is to avoid, ignore, cut out, or simply reject the teachings of Jesus that we don't like, it's important to understand that we're not following Jesus. And in reality, we have sought to make Jesus follow us. We're seeking to remake Jesus in our own image. Because if God isn't allowed to challenge us, disagree with us, or correct us, we don't have God. We actually are our own God. That's the reality of the situation. And this kind of Christianity inevitably, in my experience, leads to a sense of disconnect from God because the God we believe in doesn't actually exist. And disillusionment because this fake God doesn't work and isn't helpful. It's just a fictitious making of our own ideas of what we think God should be or or would be most easily digestible by us. When people deconstruct their faith, come to the realization that the faith that they've had isn't working for them and isn't connecting and 
they're not even sure if they believe in it anymore. Most often what comes out in that deconstruction is false gods that somebody else made or that they made themselves. Fake pictures of who Jesus is. And then they wonder why he's so disappointing and so unhelpful and, and a lack of transformation that they were looking for is because they're not dealing with the real, beautiful, and yet terrible Jesus. Terrible because he challenges the parts of us we don't want to be challenged. You with me? My sense this morning, even in the room, as we worshipped, as we prepared, is that there's an awkward energy to today. And I think part of it's around this text, is that there's a sense of like, what's going to happen? <laughs> and I think what we're going to find is we're going to find the real Jesus and the real help that we need most. But what this means for us is we get to receive the Jesus that we're actually looking for. So, do we want the real Jesus this morning? Do we want to receive his teaching this morning? So let's do that. Verse 34 is where we start. Now, Jesus has had this beautiful ministry again up until this point. Lots of crowds coming to him. The most broken down, beat up, rejected people are finding compassion and care and healing and help in Jesus in a way they've never found in religion before. So they're all flocking to him. Even the most religious people look at Jesus and find him compelling. So at this point, Jesus is at the height of his popularity. And what's going to happen is Jesus is going to intentionally dismantle that, prop, uh, um, that popularity. Okay? Because Jesus is not insecure. Jesus is not out for the approval of others. Jesus is himself. And so now Jesus is going to start to get a bit more confrontational. Not mean. Okay, not needlessly. But he's going to help people understand this is what it really means to follow me. And so here's the words that come out of this moment. Not only do I want you to share this good news publicly, but I want you to expect conflict is going to arise. That's what we've covered in the previous chapters and sections of Scripture. There's going to be persecution of you. People are going to seek to harm you at times because they reject the message. But not only that, I want you to understand this. I did not come to bring peace to the earth. I have come with a sword. What a statement. What an uncomfortable statement. So here's my translation of that. I didn't come to be a peacemaker in your dysfunctional world. I have come to bring a necessary conflict. That's what I think he's saying. There's a kind of fake peace that says we can't fix the real problems so what we need is for everyone to stop trying to change these things and just be more agreeable with the way things are. You ever found that? When this becomes the definition of peace it's the person that points out the dysfunction or refuses to play along with the dysfunction that becomes the problem. You with me? I think this is part of why Jesus is hated. Not only is he drawing attention to the real problems, 
He's offering to change things. And people that are fighting to keep things the same because they don't want to deal with the problem get really annoyed with that. Jesus is coming and he is pushing to the real issues. Now, I don't have time to talk about this at length today, but I think this is part of the reason Jesus is such good news for the problem child, the black sheep, the rebel, and even the activist. Because those are the people that are most often pointing out that there's something wrong and saying, I'm not okay with it. And they get, they, they get they're called the scapegoat. You're the problem, the system's not the problem. If you didn't make so much noise about this, this wouldn't be so bad. But Jesus is good news to those individuals because Jesus has a camaraderie with them to go, I hear you. Jesus sees that person more as a canary in the coal mine. They're saying something's wrong and Jesus is going, you're right. And I'm here to address it. So the trap, I think, for the religious person is to go, I believe in Jesus, but then when Jesus actually wants to do the transformative work he wants to do, we go, that is much too dramatic, too complicated. Creates a mess. We lose control in that situation and we actually end up losing Jesus. Jesus is coming to say, I didn't offer you religious platitudes that can be used to prop up the status quo. I've come with a sword to war against what is really wrong. Now, don't we actually want that? But do we actually want that? Right? That's the, that's the difficulty. That's the discomfort. Another way of looking at it is Jesus has come with a scalpel. I've come to make cuts, to open this up. But what that does is it puts the person in a very vulnerable situation. A very naked situation. Where Jesus is saying we have to address this. We've got to remove this in order to save you. Now, where will this conflict take place that Jesus is saying here? What body must be cut in order that it might be saved? Jesus identifies it as the family. So verse 35, For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Notice how Jesus describes why he came and what he is going to. I have come to set. So to initiate a collision or a conflict between who? A man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I will set them against each other. Now, as somebody who has in-laws, of which I have a perfect relationship with, None of this seems like a problem to me. When we look at that and we go, do we we really need more conflict in those relationships? If I was to ask you that, do you want more conflict with your parents? Do you want more conflict with your mother-in-law? No, nobody's keen on that. Nobody's looking for more reason for that to happen. I don't think we need Jesus' help with that. 
But again, just as we want to get gun shy and pull back, notice what he says next. How he will set them against each other. His way is going to cross purposes with the ways of our parents and the authority figures in our life. Verse 36. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Jesus is calling us to follow him into living differently than what our world, and even in some cases, our family, calls wise, responsible, and necessary. Following Jesus is not just countercultural to the world, it's counter-family culture. And families have systems of ingrained expectations and ways of doing things. How you earn love, the role you play to have a place in the family, and the things you need to say and do to belong. Families have systems, ways of, you know, subconscious expectations of how you are to function. And Jesus is coming to say, I'm going to push on those. Thanks. It's so inconvenient. Especially if you want the system to stay the same. Now the next verse is going to reveal what Jesus identifies as the problem in those systems. The true cause of familial pain and the issue worth confronting is this, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So Jesus here then turns the tables. It's not just the relationships you have with your parental figures. It's not just placing parents over Jesus. It's also going to be about placing children over Jesus. How do we place them over Christ? Jesus pinpoints the problem here as love. This is why I paired it with the First John Ephesians, or sorry, First John epistle reading this morning, is because we know how much Jesus highlights the importance of love. And now Jesus is going to say we have a love problem, specifically a more than love. Jesus is saying you shouldn't love your father or mother or children more than you love him. Why is this the real problem? Shouldn't we be aspiring to love our families more? Who feels like they wish they could love their family more? I do. So what do we think Jesus' answer to that is? Shouldn't we want to love our family more, Jesus? I think he would say yes. But unless you love me more than you love them, you will not be able to. So let's break down why that is. There's five key points I want to look at. The first is Jesus is most worthy of our love because of who he is. Just who he is in and of himself. Secondly, Jesus perfectly loves us. Thirdly, sin makes us prone to love others for the wrong reasons. Fourth, our flesh makes us unable to love the way we should and the way we want to. And fifth, loving Jesus more than anyone else results in loving others more than you ever could without him. These are the five main points I want to look at today. Okay, are you awake for this? Should we do a coffee break and come back? Okay, so number one, Jesus is most worthy 
of our love because of who he is. I think why this is so important is because we need a definition of what love is. We need a definition of how love looks. We need a definition of what perfect love feels like. We need a marker to make it clear for us that in all of this world, in all the different places we could look at and say, what is love? And what, is look, what does love look like? And what does love do? And how do we be in love? Of all the ways we could try and find a marker in this world, none of them compare to how beautiful Jesus is. The more you read about Jesus, think about Jesus, understand Jesus, the more you understand there's nobody like Jesus. Right? There's nobody as good as Jesus. There's nobody who does what Jesus does. There's nobody who loves like Jesus loves. Jesus, I believe, is the most beautiful thing to ever happen in the history and the creation of the world. Ever. Jesus is the high point of the universes. Okay? That's what we believe as Christians, right? So, in and of himself, Jesus is just worthy of loving. Because of how perfect he is in love. The second reason why I think this is so important. So by loving Jesus, we then have clarity in our definition and our understanding of what love is and the kind of love we aspire to. The second thing, though, is that Jesus perfectly loves us as individuals. So not only is this love perfect in theory, this love is perfect in actuality, in experience, and in availability to each and every one of us. What we see in Jesus' life, in his divinity, is he is the one who loves us enough to create us, sustain us, and design to redeem us. That's what his Godhood reveals to us. And then in his humanity, we see he's the only one who can truly know us, and understand us best. Jesus enters into our nature, our individual story, our pain, our sins, all of it, and perfectly understands us the way we wish to be understood. Now, I've been married to my wife now longer than I was without her. And as much as I want her to know me, she does not know me to that degree. There's still the invisible thoughts and feelings and you know, all, all the things that I've experienced in my story. She wasn't there for all of those things. But what we believe about Jesus, what's revealed in the Scriptures, is that Jesus does. Jesus does know you in the same way you know yourself and even more. Isn't that wild? Jesus enters into your story to get you the way nobody else gets you. So he knows the ins and outs of your whole being. Not only did he create you, but sustains you, is with you, loves you, enjoys you. And then we have in his death, he's the only one who loves you enough to suffer with you and for you and sacrifice all of himself to love you. Nobody loves you like that. Jesus even says the greatest love one can have 
is for a friend to lay down his life. Jesus is saying, that's the kind of love I have for you as the individual. So your sufferings, your sorrow, your pain, your mistakes, your shame, your self-hatred, all of those things that have piled up on you in your life, Jesus is saying, I will take all of that because of my supreme love for you. Who else can do that? Can anyone? And then Jesus goes on to say, I won't just leave you there. I'll go into your grave for you. I'll fight hell on your behalf. I'll defeat evil and destroy it. And I'll raise you with me. He's the one that lifts you out of that sin. Out of evil. Out of brokenness. Out of death. And into life. And into goodness. And into strength. Jesus is your champion. Nobody believes in the goodness of your future like Jesus does. Nobody invests themselves to that level to lift you. Not just comfort you, but to encourage and affirm and strengthen and pull you up into your high calling. Jesus looks at his image of perfection and says, this is possible in you and I'll champion it. Isn't that wild? Who needs self-actualization when we have the resurrection. I can't drum this up in and of myself. I need a champion. And so Jesus is that person who's going, I am unashamedly, unwaveringly believing in your potential. And resourcing it constantly from the inside to the outside. Are we enjoying Jesus enough here yet? Like, Then in his ascension, Jesus is the one who makes us belong. In his family, calls and equips us with purpose and eternal hope. We have a reason to live that we're not earning our place with him. He has a place with him. So all of this, we go, Jesus is the thing, the person most deserving of love. Not only that, I have a personal connection to that love because He loves me. Do we believe that? On the, so, those are the two great reasons. Let's be honest. Those are the two great reasons to love Jesus more than anybody else. If we just want to compare our family members' love to Jesus' love, how do they compare? They don't. Let's be honest. But then on the flip side, it's this. This is where it gets even more functional. Sin makes us prone to love others for the wrong reasons. So this is the real issue that we're dealing with. We love often in the hopes that they will do something for us in return. I'll be honest with you. I was up through the night last night praying through some of my own story, just realizing where the love that I thought was pure, I realized how much it was transactional inside me. The love that I have for my family is often born out of just needs. And I'll explain some of that more in a minute. But here's here's what I think happens. I think we love... When we don't love Christ more, then we love people 
with idolatrous conditions. Meaning we love them in the hope that they're going to produce in us or be to us what only Jesus can be. And so it's idolatrous because it's meant to be Jesus in that spot, but we're putting other people. We're putting parents, putting spouses, putting our children. And what we do often is we love them in the hopes that they're then going to give us back our identity. Have you ever heard somebody say, I don't know who I am without you? Right? It's this, I need to love you so I know who I am. So I know my value. I know my place. Right? We love people hoping that they're going to give back to us a value. Like even think of phrases like, if my family is happy with me and accepts me, then I'm okay. If my family's not okay with me, I don't know if I'm okay. I don't know who I am. I lose my, my, my bearings, my moorings in this life. You ever had those types of feelings? Or for success. right? I gave my whole heart to my kids, and their success makes me feel like I am a success. So our love is transactional. Or we love for security. I love them to have my needs met. Or if my mother-in-law would love me, then I would feel safe in this family. You ever struggle with those types of disconnects? Where you're just like, I don't fit into this system or economy in this family. And so I don't know where I fit. I don't know if I should even be here. I don't know if I belong here. Jesus is coming in saying, if you love me, I can answer those questions for you. But you have to love me more than them. And what we're going to see is that doesn't mean you have to love me instead of loving them. As if you're no longer going to love them. What we're going to see is that Jesus is going to say, if you love me in that space, find yourself in our love, then you'll know how to love those other people in health. So I've got to keep moving. Okay, but so you can see this. So another example would be, I love someone for pleasure. I give all of me in hopes that you will then fulfill me in return. Make sense? So here's the, here's the problem that we, we come to. Is that real love? Is it real love? It says, I'll give you all of me. I'll give anything as long as you give it back to me and fulfill me. Because I think what happens is what we start to do is we use love. We use this language of love. But really what I want from you is I'll love you as long as you can fulfill me. I'll love you as long as you can satisfy me. I'll love you in the hopes that you're going to cure what's missing and what's wrong in me. Are we any, am I the only one that does that? So when we, do, we deal with marriages, this is often what comes up is going, I gave all of me, but then they didn't give all of themselves back. And we dig down into the nitty-gritty internal stuff. What we discover is, and I deal this a lot with young men who get married, is I thought 
If I get married, I give my whole self to this person, that they would give their whole self to me, and I would no longer have sexual thoughts outside of this relationship. I would no longer have sexual needs that are so predominant. I would no longer be dissatisfied. I'd no longer be tempted. So the hope is if I get married, my wife or my spouse, because it can be either way, will cure what's missing in me. And that's idolatry. And what it does, it puts all this pressure on the relationship, and now one spouse is going, I don't know how to fulfill this person to the point where they're faithful to me. But the reality is, is that's something that needs to happen between them and Jesus. That he needs that need, creates that faithfulness by being faithful to them, and they are in turn faithful to someone else. So let's keep going. The fourth one is this. Our flesh makes us unable to love the way we should and the way we want to. So not only do we end up in conditional loving relationships, but we also then reach limitations with them. We stop loving people when our expectations aren't met. We stop loving people when we run out of desire or energy for them. We stop loving people when we get hurt. Don't we? We stop loving people when it feels too risky and too vulnerable. We stop loving people when we can't control them. They don't do what we want. And this is the thing that I find comes up most often in my parenting. It's like, man, I've loved with everything I got today. And you're mean to me. None of my kids are in church today. So I can say something. And you hurt my feelings big time. And then I don't want to love anymore. And all of a sudden it kind of surfaces the fact that in me, there's this part of me that's going, I don't know if you deserve to be loved. So again, this is that transactional nature. So what we discover about ourselves is that we love, but we have limits. We run out of energy. We run out of will. We run out of desire. We run out of a well of love to give to people. And we reach our limits. And we can't love people the way we want to. And this is what propels us to need the fifth piece. Loving Jesus more than anyone else results in loving others more than we ever could without him. Because when we hit that point of going, this is all the love I've got, we need to have somewhere to be loved. Because that relationship isn't the place that's going to give that. So that place we need is in Jesus. It's a return back to that perfect love and back to that personal love. Which is, for me, let's say if I'm hurt as a parent, I've got solutions. Jesus' life knows me and understands me. Jesus' death is going to take both their sin and mine. And Jesus' resurrection is going to restore me back to a place of able to love my kids the way I want to. Often when I reach that limit, the statement I've started saying with my kids is, I'm going to need to spend some more time with Jesus before I can finish this conversation. Because sometimes I just reach that point where I'm like, my heart hurts. We're missing each other. 
So let me just say, I love you. I'm with you. We're going to work this out together. But I need to, I need to have a few minutes and we'll come back to it maybe later. Because I need to be loved. Because I'm running out. Verse 38 goes on. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus wants us to have so abundantly received of his love for us that we will willingly and resolutely take up our cross next to him in order to be with him and to love others. This is where Jesus brings it down to this point to go. The five reasons why we need to love Jesus more than we love others now become the five assets that we use to do this very thing. If we make Jesus our greatest love, if we give ourselves to receiving his love with primacy, he's my main source of receiving love. I am me when I'm receiving love. I am me in relationships the way I want to be when I'm receiving love from Jesus. I readily receive Christ. So I'm taking up his cross for my own sins and the sins that are around me. So confession and repentance are a way of letting go of others, of going, I'm making too much of this relationship, Jesus, and I need you to be number one in me. Then it enables me to take up my cross to crucify the flesh, my limitations and selfishness that hold me back from the love that I want to have. And Jesus then compels me to a love greater and further than I had in and of my own strength. What this enables is for me to love others with the abundant love that Christ has loved me with. So this call, take up your cross and follow me, is a sacrificial love. To be with Jesus because we love Him. Sacrifice all things because we love Him. But also to sacrifice things because we love others and have everything that we need in Jesus. Verse 39 brings it to a close. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. If you try to find your life by holding on to others with an idolatrous love, you'll lose your life. You'll be sorely disappointed. You won't know who you are. You won't be fulfilled. You'll be broken inside. But if you lose that life that you currently have, of chasing after love in all the wrong finite places, if you lose that life in order to have Jesus, you'll find your life. That's what Jesus is saying here. But the promise is, the real dysfunction of your families is going, you're looking to each other to be God to you. And you need God to be God. You need Jesus to be your everything. You need Jesus to be your cure, your salvation, the womb from which you're birthed. You need Jesus to be your sole source of identity and love and all of these things. And what it's going to do is make you available to love people the way you want to. The way you're made to and the way they need you to. But we end up in these systems of you're not loving me the way I expected, so I'm not going to love you the way you expect. Love falls, this false love falls apart, doesn't it? But love in Jesus makes us go, even when 
they don't love me well. Even when they disappoint me. Even when they fail me. Even when they hurt me. You are my everything. And you help me be me in you. And able to be consistently loving them. Because their performance does not determine who I am. Right? So we hear this hard saying where Jesus challenges the whole system we live in, we grew up in, we function in. And Jesus is saying, if you make me your everything, you'll be most fully yourself. And you'll love people most fully the way you desire. Isn't that good news? But in order to have that kind of love towards others, you have to be caught up in the love like no other. You have to be caught up and reformed and fulfilled and saved and lavished upon by grace and the love of Jesus. And nothing else can be to you what Jesus offers. Amen? So let's take a moment of quiet to prepare our hearts for the table where we devote ourselves afresh to that singular love in Jesus.